Sarah for, for sharing a wonderful testimony of God's uh, goodness and faithfulness. Um, it's remember Sarah, and uh, she was actually one. Yeah, she was actually uh, gonna share a couple weeks back when we talked about uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as her way of saying I'm surrendered uh, to the will of God whatever wherever he would lead me however he would lead me uh, but the will of God was that she would share today and so she did so uh, it, it was after one of these uh, nights of Harvest 201 after we had our class uh, that this most recent class I was driving home and I was really excited I was full of life and full of hope and and full of uh, enthusiasm because we'd, we'd finished another class and our students were like so hungry for the word of God and for fellowship with each other and and such a, a blessing time so my heart was filled I was tired but um, inwardly so you know Paul says outwardly wasting away but inwardly being renewed uh, moment by moment I got up I was about uh, a minute from my house not even a minute 30 seconds from my house and um, if you know anything about the route to my house at late at night, um, there's a couple things that happen. But let me just put it out there. I started seeing these flashing lights. And if the flashing lights are ahead of me, <laughs> it's a good thing. Disney fireworks, all right, it's good. If the flashing lights are behind me, it's not a, bad, it's not a good thing because it means that it's probably the red and blue lights of a police car. Uh, the lights were behind me. And so uh, he pulled me over, and literally, uh, I could throw a rock to my house. It was two houses down where I pulled over. It was late at night. All the lights were out, and then you got this, like, red and blue light going around. And I felt like neighbors are like, we have a criminal living two houses down from us. But the guy walks over, and this is during the height of, like, police-civilian tensions, right, in, in Ferguson and Baltimore and all that stuff. And he comes over uh, very gingerly, and uh, my window's down. I know, you know, you have to be a good citizen. Put your hands on the, on the dash, on the, on the steering wheel. Put the window down. Don't, don't do anything suspicious. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? In the past when this has happened, um, it's been because I've been driving a little bit over the speed limit. I didn't think I was doing that this time. And so to me, there's no other <laughs> road sin that you could commit. So I said, no, I... Um, I don't know this time why I was pulled over. And he said, there was a stop sign back there, and you kind of rolled through it. I was like, ah, I remember that stop sign. Uh, you're right. And, uh, and then he said, and how long has your, has your headlight been out? I said, oh, I, I, uh, I didn't know that it was out. Sorry. He's like, yeah, that one, passing your sign in the front. Can I see your license and re- registration? So as I'm, I give him my license, and I'm thinking, typically you've got, you've got two options, two get-out-of-jail-free cards, so to speak, when it comes to being pulled over by a cop. Usually it works better if you're a girl, the first one, but you can start crying, right? <laughs> I thought about crying. Should I cry? And, but <laughs> I was above that. I was too prideful. I'm not going to cry in front of this man, and, and I'm not going to pull that card out yet. The other card I could have pulled was... Yeah, long day. You know, coming home from Bible study. I'm not just studying the Bible. I'm teaching it. <laughs> not only am I the teacher, but uh, the pastor. But I didn't say any of that because I was looking for my registration, which I could not find in my dash in my in my glove compartment. This is big trouble. Big trouble. And so I. I'm like nervously laughing, like sounding like 
a girl, and I'm saying, uh, I don't know where it is. I, for some, I, I know I'm registered, but I, I just can't find it. And so he gets my license. He's like, I'll be right back. And as I'm sitting in the car, you know, it t- seems like it's, he's forever in the car. Like two hours have passed. I'm sitting in the car, and... But I was, I was at peace. Man, I knew I was busted. I had done three things wrong. Uh, I'm not going to lie my way out of this. But I said, God, uh, I, I, I was bad. I did wrong. This was really, really, really no good. And I know I am guilty as charged. But it would be great. You know, it's going to cost hundreds of dollars. It would be great if I could have some mercy this time around. I know. I mean, I, I, I screwed up. And so after a couple hours, the guy comes, it's like five minutes, he comes back, and he starts making small talk about it. He actually asked what I did, and oh, Harvest, what is that, and, and all these things. And he said, you know, Mr. Kim, I could pull you, I could, I could uh, write up a citation for three things, for failure to stop at a stop sign, for having your tail, uh, headlight out, and for driving a car without having proper registration. I was like, ooh. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I thought maybe he'll lower it down to just one of these sentences. I'm going to let you go with a warning tonight. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And he said, but do me a favor. Get that light fixed and, and please drive carefully. And so I said, thank you so much. And I started mumbling like some, some stupid stuff about like, you're like the, a great person who helps other people out. And, <laughs> It sounded good in my head when it was coming out, but after I said, I was like, dude, what am I doing? Then I drove that like five-second drive, pulled into my driveway. As I sat in my driveway, the first thing I said was, thank you. Thank you, Father, for giving me mercy. But the second thing I thought was, how amazing does it feel to be forgiven? To know that somebody has seen all of the wrong that you've done, and he doesn't punish you for it. He's seen all the things that you've done wrong, and he doesn't hold it against you. He's seen all the things that you've done wrong, and he remembers it no more. And I thought, what an amazing thing forgiveness is. We experience this. We all long for forgiveness, whether it be from a cop, whether it be from God, from other people, from yourself. We all long for forgiveness. It is a universal desire, a universal longing, a universal need. The reason why so many people will leave Christianity is because of this one simple idea that they cannot grasp and wrap their minds around. That there is a God who can forgive us for anything that we've ever done. There is a God who can forgive. And the reason why so many people who grow up in church walk away from the church is because they cannot receive the good news that there's nothing that I can do to win this, to earn this, but that it is available to me. Today, I want to talk about forgiveness, what it means, what it looks like. Matthew chapter 6, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, and we've gotten through four-sixths of the prayer Today and then next week, we're going to finish out this prayer. But today, I want to talk about something that is so important, so important, that some people think, wonder why it's not the first petition, why it's the fifth thing that shows up. Matthew 6, we're going to read verses 9 through 15. We're going to actually going to read through the prayer and then read two verses after that. 
Remember that Jesus is talking to his people, right? Those in the kingdom who have put their trust in Jesus, who are living uh, with the forgiveness of sins and the understanding that they're part of a family with a father in heaven. This is God's word. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. This is, this is what Spurgeon called, this is the death warrant. As you come to God in praying, for forgiveness, if you do not forgive other people, he's saying you've signed your own death warrant. How you forgive and relate to other people has a direct bearing on your understanding of forgiveness of God and how he forgives you. Uh, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is where we're going to camp out today. We began last week. So remember, two halves of the Lord's Prayer. The first half focuses on the things of God. The second half focuses on the things of us. And the reason why the second three are there is in order that the first three would be accomplished. Why do we ask for bread? Why do we ask for forgiveness? So that his name would be hallowed, his kingdom would come, his will would be done. Last week, we began by looking at this idea that we're praying for daily bread. We're praying for food And here we move to saying we're praying for forgiveness. Jesus makes a connection between bread and forgiveness by saying as much as you need bread to live, you need forgiveness to live. As much as you pray for provision, you need to pray for pardon. Because as essential as bread is to your life, you cannot live spiritually unless your sins are forgiven. The first prayer last week is a prayer for our physical needs Today's prayer is a prayer for our spiritual and emotional needs. So what does it mean? Two things that we're going to look at as we break up each of these clauses in verse 12. The first thing that we see is if we confess, God will forgive. Okay? If we confess, God will forgive. Forgive us our debts, he says in verse 12. Forgiveness, guilt, right? Forgiveness presupposes guilt, and guilt is probably the, well, boy, one of the most psychologically damaging things. Carl Menninger, anyone here of Carl Menninger, famous psychiatrist, if you ever studied psychology, if you remember psychology, Menninger said in psychiatric wards, this is what he said, he said 75% of people, based on his clinical research, 75% of people could walk out of their psychiatric wards free if they could be convinced that their sins were forgiven. Is that crazy? Think about that. Think about somebody that you think is psycho. But people who are in psychiatric wards, like people who are mentally, they've, they've gone off of the deep end. He says three out of every four of those people could be released and sent home to live a normal life if they could be convinced of the fact that all the wrongs that they did done were forgiven. Do you feel like you're going crazy today? It may be the deep need of your heart today is the need for forgiveness. If Jesus says if the universal condition is guilt, then the universal solution is forgiveness. And he includes that in his pattern of prayer in teaching us how we ought to pray. 
See, in order to understand, we cannot understand the love of God unless we understand this petition for our sins to be forgiven. Because unless we understand the scope of our sin, we're never going to be able to understand the depth of God's love. You get this? We'll never understand how much God loves us until we understand first how sinful we are. So Paul writes in Ephesians 3, he says, This is my prayer that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might have power to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God that passes all knowledge. What does that mean? What does it mean that God's love is wide? It means that it doesn't matter how where you are, it can span the entire distance of the globe. That whether you live in Orlando or you live in England, whether you live in England or you live in Ghana, wherever you are, the love of God reaches to every place on the, con- on the globe, wherever you might be. This is how wide the love of God is. And the table of God at the great marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be long and wide. And countless people are going to be there that we never dreamed would ever be there. It's the width of God's love. How high is God's love? That no matter where you go, no matter how, there, there's no limits to the love of God in our lives. How long is the love of God? He loved you from before you were ever born, and he will love you long after you've left this planet. How deep is the love of God? It's deeper than the deepest of shame, deepest of guilt, deepest of secrets. Our shame was deeper than the sea. His love goes deeper still. No matter how deep our afflictions, how deep our wrongs, how deep our sin is, the love of God will always go one step further than that. And until, unless we understand the depth of our sin, we're not going to understand the depth of God's love. If we think I'm a little bit of a sinner, then we're going to think God's love is a little bit good. If we think we're pretty bad, we're going to think God's love is pretty good. If you think that you are downright awful a sinner, then you're going to realize that God's love is downright amazing. See, to the degree that we understand our sinfulness, that's the degree to which God's love will shake and rattle and reverberate throughout our lives. Jack Miller, he was Tim Keller's mentor. This is what he said. He says, you think you're pretty bad, but here's the reality, is that you are far worse than you ever dared to imagine. Okay, we think we're pretty good, don't we? Oh, yeah, I sin maybe like a few times a day. I'm not that bad. Jack Miller says, you know what? Here's the reality. You're far worse than you ever dared to imagine. But here's the grace that even in the midst of that, God loves you more than you could ever dare to dream. That's the fullness of the gospel, the bad news, the good news. And we have to see our sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. But the problem is our world doesn't really want us to see our sin. It makes light of sin. So here's what we do. Typically, here's what we do. We do one of a couple things with our sin. We cover our sin. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they did something they ought not do. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were guilty. So what do they do? They hide from God. They cover their sin. Do you ever do this? Elijah does this sometimes when he, uh, when he would wet his bed. And the evidence is clear as day. He's crying. He's upset. He's got wet marks on his pants. He's got urine on his bed. But he tries to cover that up by saying, oh, I'm not wet. I'm not wet. I'm not wet. But the thing is, we can see that. 
We do that with God too, don't we? Try and cover up our sin. The problem is God never loses at hide and seek. But we do that to a God who's all-seeing and all-knowing. Here's another thing that we do. We may not cover up our sins, but we deny our sins sometimes. Say, no, I, I didn't do that. In, in Genesis, uh, I think it's Genesis 18, when God is uh, ministering to Abraham and Sarah, when Sarah is old in age, and God says, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah's like, uh, I'm like really old. I'm not going to have a baby. And God confirms and says, even in your old age, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. Do you remember this passage? I think it's Genesis 18, 13, something like that. Sarah laughs. She's like, ha, 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 ha. And God responds. This is like a, a comical, comical interchange where God says, why did you laugh? And Sarah responds by saying, I didn't laugh. And then God says, yes, you did. And then it moves on to the next part of the narrative. It's really funny. But we do that too, don't we? We deny that we've sinned. Maybe not Elijah, but Elise does this a lot. Elise does, not a lot. Okay, I, I don't want to... She does this sometimes. So here, here's, here's one way that it happens. Uh, most most uh, parents of young children will know that when their children go poop, they they have this look on their face of straining, right? Because they don't know how to fake it. It's just everything about them. They just, they wear their emotions on their sleeve. And so uh, Elise had that look, and we knew that something was coming out. And so after it came out, we needed to change her diaper. I apologize for being a little bit graphic, but we need to change her diaper. So we said, Elise, and Elise is like a year old. She's not like 10 or something. She's one baby girl. said, Elise, Elise, did you go (laughs) poo-poo? She said, no. And she denies it. Said, Elise, are you sure? Elise, poo-poo? Did you go poo-poo? And she says, no poo-poo. And then she kind of figured that we're onto her trail, literally. <laughs> we're onto her scent. And so she denies it, and she says, no poo-poo. Elise, pangu, which means I passed gas. Okay, you, the, what she, basically what she's saying, what you're smelling is not poop. It's really gas that you're smelling. It's her way of saying, I know, I, okay, I did something wrong, but it's not that bad. So she denies what she does. So I said, no, Alicia, come here, come here, come here. And so we look and we see that indeed she has gone poo. And so we're changing her diaper and she thinks it's funny and she's laughing. So we say, Elise, Elise, trying to teach her at a young age, don't lie. Elise, why did you lie? <laughs> why did you say you didn't go poop when you did? And she's like laughing, playing with her elephant and at least, why did you lie? And we're, we're demanding an answer from her, right? Because she has to know, even, even though she's just a baby, she has to learn you can't lie. Why did you lie? Answer. She's just like staring at us. So at one point, a couple weeks ago, she finally answered me. She looked back at me and she said, okay, okay. You want to know the truth? What do you want from me? And I said, I want the truth. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. So she starts saying, this is what she said. The reason I lied. <laughs> because I knew that you would be upset. And I figured that uh, it was kind of embarrassing for me. Not only that, but that's not the biggest thing. But here's the real reason. Okay, Here's the real reason I did that. Because I was having so much fun 
that I knew that if I told you what I had done, then you would have to change my diaper. And I looked at her and I said, Elise, that's the same reason Daddy denies my sin before my father also. Because I'm having too much fun with my sin. And I know that if I go to my father, he's going to tell me to change. We do that a lot, don't we? We deny our sins. And now I do that. It's not really that bad. Or the third thing we might do is we make excuses. We excuse our sin. And you know what? Yeah, you're right. I did that, but it's not that bad. How can it be bad if all the other people at church are doing it? How can it be bad if it's a law? How can it be bad if everyone else is doing it? How can it be bad if older people are doing it? And we begin to excuse our sin. Isn't that interesting how we do that? To a God who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-seeing, why do we cover, deny, excuse our sin? I think in my heart of hearts because I hope that God will do the same thing that when he looks at my sin, he will cover, he will deny, and he will excuse my sin. But the reality that he can't do those things. What sin does is it creates this massive blockade, this huge barrier between us and God. Do you feel like, do you feel like there's a barrier between you and God in your prayers? You feel like there's a big wall between you and God and you can't experience him? There's a wall blocking your prayers? Here's what it says in Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. Here's what that means. Here's the word cherish. Literally what it means is to know that it's there and then to approve of it. Do you know that there's sin in your life? And if you're holding on to it, you're still approving of that. That's a cherishing of sin. If you're cherishing gossip in your life, if you're cherishing anger in your life, if you're cherishing sexual immorality in your life, if you're cherishing drunkenness in your life, if you're cherishing any kind of sin in your life, the Bible says, listen, you cannot cherish sin and cherish God at the same time. You can't. There's this huge wall that goes up. Well, that's not fair. Doesn't God always hear our prayers? Sometimes when our kids do something bad, when they don't listen to us or when they hit each other or when they do something wrong to Olivia or myself, we'll say, hey, listen, you need to understand that's wrong. You understand that's wrong. I don't want you to just cry. I want you to say sorry. Okay, come and apologize and give a hug, get a kiss, and then you'll know the restoration that comes. But they don't do that. So we say, hey, say sorry. You need to know that what you did was wrong and you need to, you need to make things right. And they don't do that and they, they walk away. They'll cover, they'll deny, they'll excuse, whatever it is. Ten minutes go by, and then they'll come back with this big old smile, and they say, can I have a piece of candy? And we're still thinking, no, you didn't, you didn't make uh, reparations for the sin that you've committed. Right, you come and say sorry before you even start talking about getting candy or whatever it is that you want. Is that wrong for us? I don't think it's wrong. They need to learn. This is called discipline. The same way, we can't just live however we want to live and then expect God to give us whatever we ask for. Is if you've cherished sin, if I've cherished sin in my heart, God's not going to hear our prayers. This is what the Bible is clear about. But what you have to understand is that God is so much more wanting to forgive than you are wanting to come before him. 
How much does God want to forgive you and me? Luke 15, Jesus tells this story. It's not a true story, but he's kind of using the people around him as the props in the story, as the characters in the story. And he talks about this kid who's run away from home. In fact, he hijacked his family by asking his dad for his inheritance before he was even dead. And he takes it and he wastes all of it and, and he just goes off and does his thing. Now, N.T. Wright, I was reading this book by N.T. Wright, and he says in modern days, it's not uncommon to see uh, pictures of paparazzi. He takes a picture of President Obama in his jogging suit running, morning jogger. I remember seeing pictures of President Clinton when he was president jogging in his jogging suit. He's running to church, whatever it is. In Jesus' time, the more distinguished a person you are, the slower you walk. You never run. And he goes on, and he says, this is what he said. He said, to see, an, especially an older person running, would be like seeing a, a, a globally respected world leader show up at a global summit in Speedos. He has immediately lost all sense of dignity. Why? Because the garments and the undergarments and all these things, in order to run, you'd have to pull up your garments and you would expose your undergarments in order to run. And in Luke 15, Jesus talks about an elderly man who runs. And why is it that he's running? He's running to his son. Would never happen. It would always be the other way around. But when you realize what kind of a son he is, he disgraced his father. He abandoned his father. He jacked up his father's house. And yet the dad is running not to beat him, but to embrace him so that the moment he begins to ask for forgiveness, the arms of the father have already been around him. You may not feel worthy to come before God, but you will always be welcome. You may feel unworthy, but you'll never be unwelcome before the embrace of the Father. He's that willing to forgive, even to disgrace himself to the point of seeing his son not only lifting up the arm undergarments, but being stripped naked. Think of all of the debt that that boy owed his father. No way he could pay. The only thing he could do was throw himself upon mercy that the Father in his goodness would somehow pay all of it. And he did not only that, but he gave the ring, the robe, the sandals, and all that stuff. We go to our Father. He embraces us. We don't say, I can pay it back, but the only hope we have is that we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God to pay a debt that we could not pay by asking his Son to pay the debt that he did not owe. And so when Jesus hangs undignified and naked upon the cross, the last word that Jesus speaks before into your hands I commit my spirit, he says, it is finished. What does that mean? Forgive us our debts. We forgive our debtors. When Jesus says it is finished, it is a business accounting term. That means that every penny has been paid on that which you owe. On marketplace transactions, on a receipt that's what, would be, that's what would be written if you had nothing left to pay. To tell us that it is finished. What Jesus is saying, it's how we can be forgiven. As unless we understand, 
if you pray this prayer, if you hear this as a child of God, you're already in the kingdom. You have a Father in heaven. That's the reality. It's never going to be taken away from you. But here's what Jesus is saying. Because of the fact that you and I sin every day, fellowship with our Father is broken. Just like we'll never, you, you, you will never disown your children. You will never say you're no longer my child. But when they sin against you, your fellowship becomes cloudy, becomes dull, becomes disrupted. And in the same way, just as we will never lose our status as children of God, the reality is that sin does disturb our fellowship with our Father. That's why if we cherish sin, we wouldn't hear our prayers. Every Wednesday night when we come to prayer meeting, every retreat we go to, every time we come to the communion table, every Sunday as we begin our time of worship, we have a time to pray so that we can prepare our hearts. Every Sunday morning, 9.45, we meet in the room, uh, second room out of here on the left, in order that we might prepare our hearts so that we can pray for forgiveness, to clear the air between our relationship and God. The first thing, if we confess, God will forgive. That's the first thing. Second thing, second thing, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The second thing, forgiven people, forgive people. Forgiven people will forgive people. Jesus makes it clear, man. Verse 14 is kind of scary. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I think, you know, sometimes we need to let verses like this really uh, marinate in our hearts. (laughs) Soak in our hearts. He's making it, we can't gloss over this. In fact, he says in verse 12, uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Meaning if you're going to forgive us, it's because we've already forgiven other people. And just in case you say, well, maybe we'll skip over that, he adds commentary in verse 14 just to make it clear. That's how important this is. Is Jesus saying that in order for you to be forgiven by God, you need to first forgive other people? Seems like he's saying that, but... To say that he won't forgive you unless you've forgiven goes against everything else the New Testament says, right? In an ultimate sense. He'll forgive you, right? You come and the the thief on a cross, he didn't forgive all of his enemies. He just asked God to forgive him, and he did. So what does that mean? I think your forgiveness of others is not a cause or a condition in order that God would forgive you. But he's saying it is a necessary consequence of already having been forgiven by God. He's saying, if you've been forgiven, you will forgive other people. You understand that? That's why, again, you have to understand how much of a sinner you are. Because unless you understand the depth of grace, you're not going to understand the depth of forgiveness to which you're called to extend to other people. If, you ever, if you're ever a, a young mom with a nursing baby, you take a bottle of, of milk and, and sometimes you put it in hot water. You cannot put a a bottle in hot water and not have what's inside become heated up as well. A forgiven soul cannot go into into the bowl of God's forgiveness and then not be changed in order that we might be forgivers of other people. This is how important this is. Again, don't gloss over this, people of God. Don't just let this be a, okay, I'm going to hear it, I'm going to be challenged, I'm going to feel like I need to forgive, and then I'm going to walk out of here. He's saying, in a sense, don't overestimate 
your understanding of the grace that you may or may not have received because your inability to forgive people may signal in your heart of hearts an inability, an, the fact that you have not yet received the forgiveness of God in your life. I don't know any other way to explain it than what Jesus is saying. I don't know any other way to explain what Jesus is saying than to put it that way. If you've been forgiven, you will forgive. And if you forgive other people, it's a sign that on the last day, your sins will be forgiven by your Father. I don't know any other way to see it. I don't think there's, and and all the commentaries I've read say the same thing. But again, we're not very good at forgiving people. You know, this is, You've heard this, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Why is it so divine? Because it goes against the default and every, uh, every inclination of our heart is to not forgive. Remember in Genesis 4, right? Uh, I remember doing a Bible study, uh, adult Bible study on, on Genesis. We're going through, we got to Genesis 4, and we met this really interesting character. Genesis 4, his name was Lamech. Lamech comes from the line of Cain, Cain who killed his brother Abel, right? Cain and Abel, from that point, the separation, the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, right? Seed of the serpent are those who don't follow the ways of God. Seed of the woman are those who bow their knee before the King Jesus. So Lamech was a seed of the serpent. He was one who was not uh, a follower of, of God, didn't put his trust in him. Lamech was a crazy guy. It says that um, <laughs> he was the first one in the Bible to have two wives, Ada and Zillah. First polygamist. You ever go in Jeopardy? His name is Lamech. A first polygamist ever recorded. And here, he, he, I think in, uh, somewhere in Genesis 4, 23, something like that, Lamech writes this poem. And he says, Hear, O Ada, hear, O Zillah. So he's writing a poem to his wives, his two wives. Right? This is very romantic. Writes this poem to his two lovely wives. And then he says, um, basically, a young man has injured me, and so... I killed him. And he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then he says, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. What is he saying? Very interesting. Saying, if anyone hurts me, I'm going to get vengeance, and I'm going to do 77 times worse than what he did to me. Isn't that crazy? So uh, John Ortberg, in one of his books, he, he writes about Lamech, and this is what he says. He's like, it's interesting that when we've been wronged, we tend to, what do we call this? When, when uh, I'm upset at somebody who has wronged me, I have a grudge against them. But you ever think about the language that we use to talk about a grudge? Right? You hold a grudge. You, oh, I don't know, you carry a grudge. Right? You nurse a grudge. Isn't this interesting? It's the language of caring for a little baby. What happens when you hold a grudge? First you have a grudge, then you hold a grudge, then you nurse a grudge. What happens when you nurse a grudge? What happens when you nurse a baby? In time, that baby gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens when we don't forgive people. You ever notice this? They did something that they talked about you. And all of a sudden, you want to kill them. <laughs> Lamech says, I was injured by a young man, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to injure him back. I'm going to kill him. And so he kills him. This is what happens when we have a grudge and we let it fester and fester and fester and fester. We get angry. We think bad thoughts about them. Think about what we want to do to them. But some of us, especially if we're in church, I'm not going to do that. We don't think about revenge. So we do something else. 
we do something else. We just kind of sweep it under the rug and we ignore it. Some of us in here simply tolerate other people because we've been hurt by them, but we know better than to go to dark places in our mind, and so we just tolerate them. Come into church, we see each other. Like some people, we have so many grudges against so many people that we can't ever interact with anybody anymore. I've been hurt by that person. I hurt that person. Oops, I talked about that person. Oops, I dissed that person. And ooh, I dated that person. Oops, that person dated my... All of these crazy things. So that you, And you tolerate. You never take steps towards dealing with these things. You know what happens when you settle for a substitute of the real thing? You never, you never really get healthy. You never really get healthy. And if you've got grudges against people, or if you just kind of swept things under the rug, people who do not forgive, and almost every psychological uh, behavioral study says that people who hold grudges have unforgiveness, bitterness in their hearts, have much higher heart rate, much higher blood pressure, higher instances of catching a cold, lower immunity. One uh, addiction specialist said that behind almost every single addiction that he studied is unforgiveness that the person holds against somebody in their life. Maybe as you try and struggle through overcoming that alcohol addiction, that porn addiction, whatever addiction it is, that food addiction, maybe the first thing is you guys go back to the Lord's Prayer. We need to begin to release and forgive people. Forgiveness is divine because it's not what the world offers. It's not what the world tells you you ought to do. Matthew 18, Matthew 18, very important. Peter says, okay, I've been wronged. And so he's, you know, Peter, he's always the one trying to boast to Jesus. Like, I do it all well. I do everything cool. He says, Jesus, I've been wronged by somebody. How many times should I, should I forgive them? Seven times? He thinks he's doing a good thing. What does Jesus say? Remember this? He says, not seven times, 77 times. Do you think Peter made the connection? Did you make that connection? Because you could do things the way of Lamech or you can do things the way that only you can do because the king of forgiveness has entered into this world. If you've received forgiveness, you will be a different kind of person. That's what he's saying. You cannot have... And then he goes on, and Jesus tells this parable about a dude who owed $25 million to his boss. And he pleads with him, and he says, you know what, I I, I blew this money. And he says, you and your family are going to be sold into slavery. And he begs with him. And he says, please have mercy. I'll pay you back. As if he could pay back a $25 million debt. And so what what does his master say? Go free. Go free. $25 million. I I absolve you. I forgive you of that debt. He goes free. He sees a fellow servant who owes him $5,000. Think about that. $25 million that you owe. This dude owes him $5 million. And the guy starts beating him up, says, give me back my $5,000. And it's interesting because in Matthew 18, that servant who's getting the tar beat out of him says the exact same thing that the other servant said. Please have mercy on me. I will pay you back. But the guy says, no, I'm not going to have mercy on you. So the master hears about it. He says, get this unworthy servant and take him out. He's not a child of God. What is he saying? Do you understand how much you've been forgiven? 
mercy as endless as the sea. Think about as endless as the sea. That's how much sin you've accumulated. You've been forgiven of all of that. And somebody has committed a bottle of water of sin against you, and you cannot forgive them. Does that make any sense? That's why understanding the gospel is central to having right relationships with other people. Got to get this. Because if you cannot forgive, it's not saying he's not saying you're having a bad day. Say you don't understand the gospel of grace. Because if we've been forgiven, that there's a change in our hearts that begins to happen. Olive and I, last thing, and, and I'm done. Olive and I watched this movie the other, uh, maybe about a month ago, called Unbroken. Anyone seen Unbroken? <sighs> Powerful movie. Great movie. About this guy named Louis Zamperini. Um, he was an Olympic runner. When World War II started, he enlisted, and he was an army pilot. And he was shooting Japanese warplanes, and then his plane got, uh, anyone's got shot down, something happened. But uh, he and two other dudes fell into the Pacific Ocean. And for 46 days, this cat survived on a raft that had been shot through riddled with bullets at the 27th day or so. 46 days. Finally, a plane came to rescue them, and it happened to be the Japanese. They took him to war camp, POWs, and they were, treat- they were tortured. I mean, how many times my blood began to boil as I was watching the inhumane treatment of these soldiers. He was an officer, and, and one of the things that, particularly there was, this, there was this bad dude named the bird. He was like the worst of all, unconscious. I, I Googled his name, and there's some people who said he was, uh, they, they likened him to Satan. Whipping, torturing, and especially picked on Zamparini because he was an Olympic athlete. He just wanted to break him. Uh, there would be times where these guys would have to, um, with their own human feces, fertilize the carrots and the potatoes, and then they would have to eat their own human excrement. So it was just, you can imagine the psychological da- damage and the anger and the angst and all of these things. Yet in the midst of all of that, being beaten and tortured and having to do solitary, all kinds of craziness. Uh, Louis Zamperini was finally, when... Uh, when uh, War ended, uh, he was released, went back home, and he said in the midst of all of that, he survived everything. He was, quote-unquote, unbroken. But as soon as he got back to America, he looked fine, looked normal, but when anxiety or when something began to push him over the edge, this rage would come out. People were like, who is this guy? And he would just like, go ballistic, and all of this post-traumatic stress and these things would begin to, to, to come back, and he would have nightmares. And all of these nightmares, he would see the faces of these people. So the one thing in his life, the only thing in his life, he said, the only thing that will satisfy me is I'm going to go back to Japan. I'm going to kill the bird. That's it. I'm going to kill him. So he would have nightmares where the bird would be beating him, constant recurring nightmares. He'd be beating me to wake up in the middle of the night just screaming being beat in his dreams, and then he would be choking the lights, the life out of the bird. And his wife, would she was like so scared. She'd be woken up to screaming in the middle of the night. One night, particular, this awful nightmare. 
He was getting beat, beat, beat. He started choking out the bird and screaming and screaming and screaming as he's choking. And then he wakes up to screaming and he realized that he's on top of his pregnant wife choking her. And she said, we can't, I can't do this anymore. But she didn't sign divorce papers. That week, I think, she went to a crusade that a preacher named Billy Graham was having. And her life was changed in an instant. And she went home that day. He was drunk, depressed. And he came home that night and he came to beat his wife and he realized immediately upon looking at her, something's different about you. And she said, you know, the one thing I've been looking for all of my life, I found it tonight. And day after day after day, he refused to go. He refused to go, refused to go. Till he just felt God telling him to go and he didn't want to, didn't want to, didn't want to, didn't want to, didn't want to change his life because he didn't want to let go of that one thing. He wanted to kill the bird. And so he said, I'm going to go. Finally, he said, I'm going to go. But the moment that man says every head bowed, every eye closed, we're leaving. He said, all right. We get to that place, preaches this message. He hears about God's forgiveness, and he says, I'm leaving. And as soon as he hit the aisle to leave, he couldn't make that turn. He said something stopped him from making that turn. And he walked that sawdust trail, and he began to realize that every moment of my life, 46 days on a raft that was being riddled with bullets, all of these things that happened in POW camping and being beaten, and God's hand was on me. And as soon as he heard that he could be forgiven, his life was changed. So that night, no more nightmares, no more anger. He said, it's like it all melted out of me, completely changed. He said part of it, the hardest thing, was that he could no longer hate the bird. That was hard for him. It was the one thing he wanted to do, but his life changed to the point where the very next year, He went back to Japan where all of these guards, all of these generals were thrown into prison for war crimes to the very country where he had told Time magazine in an interview, he said, I would never set foot in Japan again. I hate that country. The very next year after he gives his life to the Lord, he gets back there and he sees the bird wasn't there. He had somehow not been tried on crimes, went to America. But he saw the faces of all these other guards that had beat him. And he looked at them, and he forgave every single one of them. And then 1998, the Olympics were in Nagano, Japan. He went, and he was one of the ones who carried the torch for America. And as part of his route, he ran by the prisoner of war camp that he was so deeply devastated, so deeply beaten, psychologically damaged at And he ran with a huge smile on his face as he pronounced forgiveness over all who had hurt him. This was made into a movie, made into a book by a woman named Laura Hillenbrand. She wrote Seabiscuit. He said, I I heard the story. I knew this guy was was crazy. I didn't think of anything of it until I sat down and met with him. And I said, how could you live this way? As you talk, you're smiling as you recount these details. There's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's not, none of that stuff. How can, how, can you, how can you speak like that? And she writes, his answer was simple. He said, I've forgiven them. Everything is different. And she said that began 
her own personal journey of forgiveness. You know how many times in that movie I wanted to beat the tar out of these Japanese people and these other people who are being so mean to the American soldiers? And if somebody could just put them in their place, man, if... But Louis realized that instead of putting them in their place, Jesus came and hung in their place. Instead of saying, I'm going to pay you back, he said, I'll pay for everything. The only place, the only place where this kind of power, this kind of love, this kind of forgiveness comes, the only place where you can let down that massive log of grudge that you've been holding. You kneel in the ground in the dust at the foot of the cross where mercy paid for you. And in being forgiven, God expands and swells our hearts so that we could be able to say, God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debts. As forgiveness doesn't happen overnight, in fact, it may take a long, long time. And I don't think that if there's someone that you need to forgive, I don't think the first step right now is moving to that place. I think the first step is just standing in this place and just asking the Lord to turn on the fountainhead of forgiveness into your own life. Unless we understand the $25 million debt that has been forgiven, we will not be able to give even a $5,000 debt from other people. It doesn't begin with us thinking about all the people we've wronged. Unless first you know in your heart that you have been forgiven deeply and you're acutely aware of that and your heart has simply been denying that and God's calling you now to forgive. But if you don't know that deep forgiveness of God, You need that. Every single person in here was born sinful. Therefore, every single one of us in here needs the forgiveness of God. I know that there may be people in here who have not received God's forgiveness. You're aging prematurely because you hold these grudges against people. And you've tried and you've tried, but for the life of you, you don't want to do it. Can I tell you that the first thing that you need and the most important thing you need is for your sins to be forgiven, for you to put your trust in Jesus who took your place in order that you would be forgiven. You owed a debt that you could not pay. And he came and he paid a debt that he did not owe in order that you could say, forgive us our debts. doesn't matter if you've been coming to church for a long time or it doesn't matter if you're it's the first time coming to church and every single one of us needs to personally choose the forgiving one Jesus in our own hearts in a moment I'm gonna invite anyone like that to just where you are quietly and in your own heart pray and then to raise your hand in order that we can pray together all of us I'm not gonna put you on the spot or not gonna call you out or make you do anything like that, but in order that you might personally make that choice, I'm going to give an invitation in just a minute, but for the rest, for all of us in here, let's pray and let's respond to the word of God.
Is there blockage in your relationship with God because you have not asked forgiveness? Because you're running from him, you're covering, you're hiding, you're denying, you're excusing. Let's go before the Lord God and ask for his forgiveness. His forgiveness was bought at the cross already. Jesus paid it all. All you need to do is open your hands to receive and ask for it. Let's pray like that for a moment right now and in a minute or so. I'm going to, with our eyes continually closed in a posture of prayer, I'm going to give an invitation for anyone who wants to receive the forgiveness of God through prayer. So let's pray for a couple moments and then... Continue in this spirit of prayer. I just want to ask that you would continue to keep your eyes closed and, and pray. And if you're here today and you say, you know what? Yeah, I need to be forgiven by God. Others may have forgiven me, but the most important one is God because it's with Him that I will one day stand before and give a reckoning of my life. The universal condition of sin and guilt was met by a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And he stands at the door of every heart, it says in Revelation 3.20, and he knocks, and if anyone opens a door, I'll come in and have intimate fellowship with you. Change you from the inside out. You don't need to change yourself. I will work in you so that you might be changed. If there's anyone like that who I need Jesus in my life. I need forgiveness. I'm going to invest. I'm going to ask if everyone's eyes closed. If that's you, just where you are, raise your hand. I'll recognize and see. Thank you. See you. Young lady. Thank you. Another young lady here. Praise God. Thank you. See you. Okay. See you. See you here. Yeah, there's about three or four people that have indicated their need for forgiveness for a Savior. Praise Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. See you here, too. Okay. Gotcha, sister. Five beautiful ladies. Praise God. Understanding their need for forgiveness. Praise God. Anyone else like that? Okay, see you. seven or eight of us. Okay, wonderful. All ladies today. Okay, there's our first brother and then another sister. So Lord, I'm going to, there's about 10 people in here like that right now just saying I need forgiveness and listen if you've already put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord you don't need to do that again right all you need to do Jesus says if you've been bathed already you only need to wash your feet 
You don't need to put your trust in Jesus again and again, but you ask for forgiveness. But there are people who I believe is making a profession of faith for the first time, maybe about 10 of us in here. So let's, uh, for the sake of all of them, as a way of encouraging them, can we pray together as we welcome these brothers and sisters into the fellowship of the forgiven? Uh, let's pray together uh, as you repeat after me. You can pray, uh, repeat loudly or, or uh, quietly, but if you can repeat out, out loud as a way of reminding and confirming the gospel truths in your own heart. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me. I confess that I have sinned and I'm guilty. I need forgiveness. I cannot earn that. Thank you that Jesus came. He lived perfectly did not deserve to die but he took my place and he took the place of every sinner as he hung unjustly for the sins of the world I believe that Jesus died for me so that I could be forgiven so that I could be free so that I could forgive Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. Help me to be the person you want me to be. I love you, Jesus, because you've loved me first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we stand together, I want to ask us, can we give a round of applause to our God for... um, Not only the forgiveness that has been given here today, but the forgiveness that we've received already. Um, Let's stand together. We're going to continue to worship as we uh, give our hearts, our tithes, and our offerings. But as we um, continue to to pray and worship the Lord, uh, let's celebrate his faithfulness. And for those of us in here who have raised our hands to make this prayer, this decision of faith, uh, please, 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 uh, at the end of service, uh, talk with Daniel or talk to me in order that we can continue this journey together.